Well, may we say, God save the Queen, because nothing will save the Governor-General. You know I've searched my heart to prove There's better ways to push and pull Hey, whatever gets you through these days Hello and welcome to Well May We Say, a progressive podcast about Australian politics. This is episode 65 for Friday 28th of September 2018. I'm Jeremy Sear and each week I'll be joined by a different guest host to help me discuss what's been happening to our country, what's likely to happen to our country and hopefully what we can do about it. Tonight's guest host is returning guest host from the very first episode, Erin Riley. I think this is my third run round. Your, your history of this podcast goes right back. I was the first guest. And I think we did like three recordings before we got that down. That, that took a while to get started. Yeah, it was a bit of an issue. And now um, I, I get really nervous. I'm like, oh, I've got to make sure everything is working 100% right. So, you know, touch wood. We've got it right today. Well, I feel that my whiskey and your G&T will certainly help with that. And there is a reason for this. We have to talk about Scott Morrison. Scott, I've just learned not to care, and I really don't. <laughs> Morrison. So, notwithstanding that the Daily Telegraph and the Australian and the entire News Corp stable are trying very, very hard to make Scott Morrison seem like a decent bloke, and they have their full-page story in the Daily Telegraph on the weekend where Sherry Markson was, you know, the most revealing look at Scott Morrison yet. And did you know he's got a mortgage, an ordinary mortgage like the rest of us? Absolutely. I'm not entirely sure how many of the rest of us have family trusts, had uh, investment properties and holiday homes back in 2008 that have now disappeared maybe into the family trust. Who knows? The home that he has is more than double the median when he bought it and now in the area that he is. And he's been on a very high salary for a very long time. And he still has a giant mortgage. And he was the treasurer. Also, I have a strange little insight. I happen to know he's knocking his house down and building a new one. And I know this because I went to look at a show home because, you know, I'm from Sydney. Therefore, you know, you spend the weekends looking at property you could never actually afford. Why do you do that? Why do you torture yourself? I just like to dream. But anyway, I looked at this beautiful mid-century style show home and it was just a couple of days after Morrison became Prime Minister. And the guy said, oh, guess what? Scott Morrison's building this exact house. So I may have hated him even more than normal in that moment. Well, they, they moved apparently to Kirribilli on the weekend because why, why would they slum it at the lodge? These great leaders for the rest of us are just like, well, I don't want to live in bloody Canberra. He is so Sydney-centric. He could not be more Sydney-centric, uh, as was his predecessor, Malcolm. And he's just very sydney yeah. He's Sydney-centric, but he's also just very Sydney. And the worst parts, like the Shire, like the worst parts of Sydney. But this isn't the stuff that's awful about Morrison. That Obviously, the most awful stuff about Morrison is what he spent his time as immigration minister doing to refugees. And the fact that we discovered this week he actually has on his desk a... Have you seen the picture of this? Oh, yes. yes. It looks like Photoshop, but it's apparently not. It's real. So it's uh, like a metal silhouette of um, what's supposed to be a refugee boat, uh, sort of with a wobbly wave, and it says on it, I stopped these. I made this. And apparently he's also given them out to people in the department of persecuting refugees, saying, we stopped these. It, I mean, it looked the photograph looks like somebody has photoshopped I stopped these over the top, but uh, according to... 
the breast gallery that no, that is actually that is there and it has been there for a long time and none of them told us. How has that not been something that somebody has remarked on by now? That that this dickhead minister has the thing that a celebrates something awful, the idea that I stopped people fleeing persecution and pushed them somewhere else. But secondly, it's a lie. They didn't stop them coming. They know that they've had to admit that they didn't stop them coming. So he has a thing up there that would be monstrous if it were true and is even more monstrous because he's pretending that it's true and it's a lie. I think the thing that angers me so much about the the stupid boat is, look, I can understand having a different position on some issues. I can understand coming to the conclusion that, you know, it's hard, but it's in Australia's best interest or whatever. I don't believe that for one second. I think that it takes a lot of bending over backwards to get to that position. It takes a lot of believing of lies. But at least be a little bit sad about it. Be a little bit, you know, at least pretend that you have some empathy. But they don't even need to pretend. No, I'm now going to have to go and grab the audio from his hideous kitchen cabinet uh, episode a couple of years ago when he was, I think he was still immigration minister and was just about to be treasurer at that point. But Annabelle Crabb uh, asks him about the about the boats and he makes a comment. The one thing I, I would ask on occasions is I make no assumptions of bad faith on those who hold a different position to me on this. I know they care deeply about the humanity of people and and the issues that they were going through. Uh, and why they would advocate a particular set of policies. I've rarely found the reverse extended. Yeah, because yours is fucking monstrous and based on lies and you're harming human beings in a way that is profoundly wrong and is indefensible. And it's like a murderer coming back and being like, look, I understand that some people don't like me committing murder, but I very rarely get people come up to me and say, look... We don't agree with you on the murder, but we understand why you're doing all of these murders. We understand that, you know, you might be coming to those murders and your desire to commit murder from a position of good faith. Maybe from your perspective, all of those horrible murders are understandable. No, they're not. <laughs> they're not equal positions. No, no. I, I, and I don't, I don't think in, in any way they are. But I, I know conservatives who do have some, you know, deeply held positions that I disagree with and... I'm willing to extend. Do you have any conser- conservative friends who are willing to actually try and pretend that this position is in any way morally defensible or sustainable? Because I'd love to have one of them on for like three, five minutes. See how long they can go defending this policy without saying something staggeringly racist. Because I don't think you can. Oh, yeah. But I, I do know people like that. And... and- you know, they're people who I do generally think are kind, empathic people who have been misled largely. Ah, so when they're confronted with what do, what do they think that's not true? Oh, it's the myth of the queue. Oh. It's always the myth of the queue. Right. Because, of course, if your house is on fire, you ring up the fire department and you're like, look, uh, I, I haven't booked this fire in. Um but I suppose I should just wait. How, how, do you know how long the queue is at the moment? My, my house is burning down right now, but um, should I stay here for a little bit until you work your way through the queue? And I mean, I'll, I'll probably burn to death, but is it, I don't want to jump the queue. That would be very rude of me. I mean, aside from that, the fact there is no queue. You can't get in a queue. It's not like you just like rock up at your local Australian embassy and go, hey, I'm here, add me to the list. Yes. Like there is no queue. Uh, so I, I think the idea is that there are, 
other people whose houses are burning down who aren't getting in boats because that's breaking the law and all that stuff, which is incorrect, but... And what do they say when you say to them, hang on, there is no reason why we have to take a place from somebody in in the the particular program that we do take people from, which is a tiny fraction of the world's refugees. There is no reason why when somebody arrives here, we need to punish another refugee by taking a place away. That is a thing that we didn't used to do. We only started doing it under Howard, where Howard's like, if somebody arrives by boat, then we'll take a place from one of the other people and play the refugees off against each other. Yeah, we're doing that, but that's an easy. there's an easy fix there, which is stop doing that. This whole thing is, oh, we've got to be kind to the other refugee. That's, that's easy. Just don't take the place away. It's when you get down into the weeds of the policy that you understand this. And I think a lot of people just don't do that. They're not that engaged. Mm. It's not something that is of interest to them. And that's where the messaging becomes such a problem because certain media outlets do perpetuate these myths or lies, really. Yeah, so the the boat should really say, I stopped you finding out about what we're doing in relation to these. Because the entire thing relies on... Secrecy, and you, which also shows how. Okay, towards the end of this podcast, I'm gonna. I think we should discuss the Robert Mann thing, uh, where he's basically come out and said, "Look, let's just let's just give in. It's politically unsaleable to say let's just treat refugees with humanity. How about we simply go? Look, we'll just put up a, a, a solid force stopping any boats arriving, and that means that if it's solid enough, and that's what we're doing right now, then nobody's gonna get through, and we can." let the refugees who we're currently persecuting come through safely. And, you know, there, there's a compromised position. Of course, that compromised position, Robert, does rely on um, us brutally persecuting a bunch of other refugees, uh, dragging them back to sea, uh, which causes them, you know, like they're not safe when they're dragged back to sea or causes them to mo- do other even more dangerous routes or to stay in danger. Like, it's not a humane humanitarian thing to do in the, in the first place. And the idea that we have to cave to the monstrous lies that have backed up this entire pro- policy to this point and go, oh, well, how about a compromise position where we only, only persecute the new refugees and we slightly less po- we stop persecuting the old ones? Actually, let's talk about that now. Well, I mean, that's essentially the idea of the compromise of the wall in the US. Like, it's pretty clear where he's got that policy idea from. Well, the, the wall isn't even... They're not proposing to be kind to the ones who were there either, though. The, the American one is, we also want to go and find everybody who... In fact, even people who offer to help or shelter the children that we're taking away from their parents, we're going to try and deport those people as well. Oh, there was a compromise on the table that would uh, include both the wall and comprehensive immigration reform, including uh, the Dreamers. But that's that's for an American politics podcast. I'm, I'm so disappointed. I mean, I... I don't really know Robert Mann. I, I know that he's promoted as being a person who's a supporter of refugees, but I think he has to have lost that position after writing this piece, making that argument, because he, he's right that we have to stop persecuting the refugees, and he's right that, that we have a giant political problem. But the giant political problem isn't because we're not compromising enough. The giant political problem is because the government is getting away with hiding what's going on, and you can tell that that's important because they insist on doing it. If Australians didn't care what we did to refugees, then the government wouldn't need to hide from us. They could just go, look, this is what we're doing. They're foreigners, we don't care. But they do hide the specifics of what they're doing because they know that if Australians were confronted with it, they would massively lose support. And the other thing is we need to do a better job of getting out there and, and having people like Robert Mann stop repeating. Like in this article, he repeated the lie that what he did, he said, look, there's faults on both sides. The, the um, right pretends that it's necessary to keep harming these refugees to deter others. 
But the left keeps pretending that it's a lie and keeps saying that it's it's uh, not true that they stopped the boats but and refuses to concede that they did stop the boats. But they did stop the boats. No, Robert, they didn't stop the boats because even in Senate estimates, Border Force has to keep admitting that the boats keep coming. Still coming. And that's just the boats who are... Yes, they stopped the boats landing in Australia. They didn't stop the boats. And then obviously one arrived in Daintree, which did land today. But that's exactly right. Like, that, that is a huge lie yeah. that, that... You know how they, they, they like to pretend we've got some kind of lefty media? Who are, who are pro-refugees. How often do you hear the, lefty, the, the media call bullshit on the, the, this line that we stopped the boats? Because they're, they're doing a shifty. They're like, boats coming by sea is dangerous and refugees die and they drown when the boats sink. So it's very important that we stop them doing that. And we've stopped the boats landing safely in Australia by dragging them back out to sea. Those are not the same thing. There is a giant fudge there. You haven't stopped them taking the dangerous journey. Yeah. You've just made it twice as dangerous. That that should be called out. Yes, but it's a it is a political problem. Um, I do wonder though. But giving into them won't help. No, but is the first order issue getting people out of detention? The first order issue is not doing any more evil. So stopping doing the none of you don't don't trade off and be like, look, how about we do a bit more of this evil thing to stop doing that evil thing? No, you stop doing all the evil things. I, I understand that, but we also deal in a political reality. You don't, you don't pander to it. You, you keep arguing for it. People don't respect compromise anyway. But, but if, while we're arguing for it, people are staying in detention that could be out if we made a compromise, is it worth... But that, is, or that isn't true either. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I don't agree with his premise that, that this would actually be politically saleable anyway. That's his argument. His argument is rather than pushing a more progressive agenda, which I would prefer, obviously, but the most important thing is to get these people out of detention. And so if we have to compromise on other things, it's worth it to achieve that end. Yeah, he's doing it. He's trying to set it up as a bit of a trolley problem. Look, we have to run over these refugees, but but we can possibly save this set of refugees. I think that, A, it won't work um, as, as a, an intellectual um, problem. If we could save these refugees by being cruel to these refugees, would it be worth it rather than saving no refugees? Like that's the that's a, the logic problem he set up. But I don't think it's I don't think it's realistic either. Uh, he's- it's not a it's not a trolley problem. It's more like you've got two trolleys and two groups of people, and you can either pull the brake on one or none at all. And it's you know not pulling the brake on one out of principle seems like I don't want people to stay longer in detention while we figure out a perfect solution. I want people out of detention as soon as possible. But it's not I'm not it's not the perfect being the enemy of the good. It's a No, no, it's the it's the mediocre being the enemy of the better. But it that situation would still be better than the status quo. No, because you would be doing what the ALP's been doing, which is continually reinforcing the lies and making them harder to fix. So if you say, okay, but it is necessary. We, we we accept that it's necessary to have this ring of steel bullshit. Then you are basically giving cover to the monstrosity that it is and making it harder to fix. I think the ALP trying to cave. But but you're happy with people no. being in detention longer. No. So as not to cr- create that reinforcement because that's the reality of. But I don't think that's a real choice anyway. I don't think that and I don't think that that is actually a position. This compromise would just be pushed even further. Like this is a bargaining against ourselves thing where we just get weaker each time even if we tried to play that game 
I don't think it would have. I don't think that they're, they're not offering it. It's not a deal that the Conservatives offered us today. I know, but if you guys were like, they're not. This is us making a further cave towards inhumanity. Without it, there's no guarantee we'd get that anyway. But I don't think that I don't think that that is politically realistic. I understand that, but I think that the the position he was suggesting was that, and that's what we have to respond to. And I think that what he was suggesting is better than the status quo. Because I think getting people out of detention is the top priority issue. Isn't that, that's essentially the same thing as saying, here are two prisoners. We're going to shoot both of them unless you say it's okay for us to shoot A uh, and then we won't shoot B. It's not okay to shoot either and we're, we're, we're complicit if we play that game. No, no, but what? It, it's not that. It's here's two prisoners. I'm going to shoot both of them. Yep. I'm giving you the opportunity to not let one get shot. Yeah, and in exchange for that, you have to support me shooting the other one. No, no, you don't have to. So you'd rather two people die, two people get shot, so you don't support one person getting shot. Uh, no, I'd rather fight against the shooting of both of them and at no point cave to because they're both wrong. Yeah, yeah, but until that happens... Why would they get... Okay, so if they're agreeing to the deal, it means we're giving something up. It means we're doing something to help them, right? Otherwise, what's the political deal? What we're doing is boosting the other monstrous thing that they're doing. Yep. The only way that we win this argument is we stop caving to them. We make the position relentlessly clear and and don't resolve from it. Yeah, but I'm not comfortable with people staying in detention so we can win the argument. It's nothing to do with it. It is. This isn't a deal they're offering. There isn't a magic deal where they're like, we'll let them go if you support us persecuting them on, on the seas. We're, we're talking about the theoretical deal. And if that deal was on the table, I think we should take it. And you disagree, and that's fine. That's... But I think it's more important to get people out. So what? what is the deal? We support the Ring of Steel dragging boats back to sea so other refugees die, and we support that. I want people out of detention, and I want that to happen so do I. first. And I think that keeping people in detention so we can make a point about not supporting the Ring of Steel is a bad idea. It's not making a point. It's about... No, no, this isn't a this isn't a, a, a philosophical debate. This is a if we support them doing this, they will continue dragging people back out to sea where they will drown and die, or they will continue bullying people into staying in danger where they will die. We are actually supporting them and making it easier for them to kill more people. And they're doing that anyway, but with the without our no no, but we're making it harder for us to But we're not. We're losing the argument. Yeah. And we lose it every time we cave further to them. The problem is that we do too much of the shit. No, I... The ALP caving has, has been the thing that's weakened. I disagree. It's, look how much the Greens have put refugees' issues front and centre and they're still losing votes. Well, not because of that. How do you know that? The problem is that, the, that people like the ALP keep repeating coalition lies for them. So we had Al Albanese a few months ago saying, you know, they did stop the boats and we were wrong to oppose that. I think the problem is that most people are pretty racist and are going to support racist policies. And they get away with it because they don't get called on it. No, I think that we can't wave a magic wand. I think more than 50% of Australians support racist policies and we can't wave a magic wand to make them not racist. I would love to be able to do that. We can do all the stuff the government doesn't want us to. For example, shining a fucking spotlight on what's going on there. Uh, and I completely agree we should be doing that. And arguing relentlessly, like all of the people who support this shit, 
rather than caving to them. Like, they don't cave a fucking thing. Every time the ALP caves a bit further, they just go even further. Like, do you remember when boat turnbacks were beyond the limit and Labour was like, we're not going as far as turnbacks? I mean, that's ridiculous, dragging boats back to sea. Nobody would do that. And now it's bipartisan. And what's happened? The coalition should have gone even further and been like, well, you know, Labour's too soft on boats. Like, you can never win by pandering to them. They just go further. Yeah, and you know why they did it? Because... It wasn't a popular... It, because of the politics. And they lost. I mean, it's just... It's very difficult. But, but that, hang on, but my point is, it didn't help them. Yeah, they've lost because a lot of Australians are pretty racist. I think they weakened their position by agreeing with the coalition rather than standing up and saying, hang on, we are better than this. We are a better country than this. We don't need to do this. Like, if you argue with these people for, very, for more than five minutes, they, one thing they'll say is like, what number? How many refugees can come here? What number? And you're like... How many babies do we let be born next year before the hospital goes, I'm sorry, you're over our quota. How many houses do we go? The fire brigade goes, sorry, we're not coming now because we've hit our number of the fires that we agreed to take this year. So bad luck if you're with your emergency. If refugees are people fleeing an emergency, they're not a thing you go, here's a hard number on it. And then they're like, oh, you're going to flood Australia with refugees and destroy our infrastructure. No, refugees, immigrants build infrastructure. Like every part of their campaign, every part of their argument is based on dumb lies that we should be able to call out. And we are not doing a good enough job of getting out there. And particularly the people who are supposedly leftists in the media, they cave too quickly on all this shit. And I think that's where we're losing the argument. See, I think it's more complicated than that. I think that... One of the issues is the way people identify community and the idea of imagined communities and the way nation works as an imagined community. There's all this research that shows that people feel a stronger connection to someone of the same nationality than to someone of a different nationality. So we feel like we have more moral obligation to support someone from our own country than from another. Which is always ironic from a conservative who's happy to kick people on New Start into the gutter. Yeah, of course. You know, we've got to help our own people first. All right, can we raise New Start? Fuck no. But that is a real psychological and cultural phenomenon that politicians play into. And again, it's not just going to magically go away. It's it's about having conversations and making people understand things and having more multicultural communities and that sort of thing. But it takes time. And I guess my real thinking about this is that I think it's a long game. I don't think this is something that's going to change overnight. And I just don't want people in detention while we're playing the long game. I don't know that. We basically need to push for the next government being... Uh, a minority government where the Greens hold the balance of power and can force the government to stop pulling this shit. Yeah, except you can't actually push from. No one votes for a minority government. No, we've got to... But hu- yes, that would be the ideal situation. The more votes the Greens get off Labour, for example, the better. Labour with a majority will just do a bunch of horrible shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think they'll do some horrible stuff and some really good stuff. But yeah, I, I mean, I would love to see. But I, or, by the same, you know, stretch, how awful would it be if Pauline Hansen had balance of power. So, I mean, it's a little bit of be careful what you wish for. Well, Pauline Hanson with the balance of power would never support Labour in the first place. So Hanson with the balance of power would be a... Well, I know, but I think that that would actually be worse than the status quo. Yes, yes. If the Liberals got back in on Pauline Hanson seats, yeah, that would be a vastly worse outcome. And I strongly recommend people put Pauline Hanson below the Liberals and last. Yes. But all I'm saying is that, like, the whole minority government can, can go both ways. Yes, I'm not, I'm not supporting the idea of minority government in... Well, sorry, I don't think that any majority government in Australia is legitimate because I don't think that there is any party that gets 50% of the votes and the 50% of the support. So no party should have 50% of the seats in Parliament. 
Like, it is a fudge of our electoral system that it creates. Oh, uh, you are preaching to the choir here. I do not believe local representation is a 21st century political concept or has any relevance in the 21st century. Multi-member electorates. Oh, I couldn't agree more. You saw how bananas the uh, media went over the whole switching prime ministers. And they're like, but people vote for the prime ministers. Do oh. they? Because then what the hell are we doing with local electorates then? Local elect- electorates drive me nuts, but also equal representation in the Senate. Come on, the state is not a relevant unit anymore. For the issues that they're talking about at state level, we don't need equal representation at in the Senate for all states. It should be apportioned according to population. Okay, that that is a an excellent segue to the issue of quotas and the Liberal Party's problem with women, because you had Erica Betts, a man who whose position is based on Tasmania having these quotas where it gets as many senators as New South Wales with a fraction of the votes, Senator Betts needing far fewer votes by a huge, huge factor than anyone in New, any senator from New South Wales, for example. Yes, senator from a state that, that only has this representation by means of quotas in the Senate, uh, complaining about quotas for women. And Helen Kroger, the chair of the Liberal Party's Federal Women's Committee, saying that she has no problem with quotas but can't endorse them. And this is the quote, and I wish there was audio of this, but anyway, this is the quote uh, as reported in Fairfax. The Labor Party has killed the term quota for us by adopting it. Personally, I have no problem with quotas, but the term is a no-go zone, and it's purely because of Labor. That is the party currently in government. They can't do a thing if Labor did it. The Labor Party... Many of its members wear pants. We refuse to wear pants because the Labour Party has adopted pants. <laughs> well, look, the Labour Party has a white male leader, so shouldn't that be a problem for them to also have a white male leader? Yeah, yeah. The Labour Party has killed the idea of a white male leader for us by having one. We have no problem with white male leaders, but the term is a no-go zone and it's purely because of Labour. That'd, that'd be good. It's absurd. But uh, the conversation about quotas is one of my absolute just... Hot but you know those issues that when people talk about you just can't keep calm. Yes, do do go on. Like multi-member electorates is one for me. That's me on quotas. It's amazing how quotas are only ever talked about in regards to women and people of color. There are so many quotas in our political system: left faction versus right faction. Here's the number of people from the country versus the city. There's all these quotas, but they don't count as quotas because they're not about increasing the representation of representation of people who aren't straight white men. Yeah. I love the quote from John Howard this week that setting gender quotas was patronising. He said, look, the Liberal Party should recruit more women in their parliamentary ranks, uh, but uh, I don't believe in quotas for female politicians. He told his male-only audience at a men's-only club. And that just goes to it, which is it's about addressing structures and the way structures exclude women and because we're not on an equal playing field. I've seen a lot of this coming out of the US this week uh, with the Kavanaugh nomination. Hey, hey, maybe women just aren't as good as men and that's why... (gasps) Oh, I love that one. (laughs) Maybe maybe the Liberal Party is a meritocracy and and it's just that they just don't have as many talented women and, and, you know, it's such a meritocracy that John Howard became Prime Minister and Tony Abbott. (laughs) And Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison. Look, a meritocracy where only the best rise to the top. Uh, The thing that really gets me is the way people, particularly a certain group of right-wing men, but generally 
use the term merit as though it's this objective concept. Mm. Like, well, it's only fair that there are lots of men because merit, as though merit is this thing that exists and is clear and isn't constructed based on values that are very skewed because of gender and race and a whole bunch no, of no, other no, no, issues. No, no. The, like, very, the very idea... The very objective cis white men who make these decisions take the applicants for jobs and so forth and they put them into the meritocracy computer and it determines their merit based on completely objective factors that have nothing to do with the fact that they keep only hiring white men who are cishet and all the rest of it from their class and who are mates with them. Meritocracy. Objective. Yeah. Yep, it's just, it's infuriating. It staggers me that the people with all the privilege, and any type of privilege, like whether it's on race, gender, orientation, whatever it is, view any attempt to counter that privilege because they, like, they see the privilege as the neutral. I haven't benefited from this. It's just, this is just the way 100% of my life I've been a white male. Clearly, this is just the objective reality for everybody. And look, if everybody else is falling short, that's not my fault. You, you must be doing all something wrong. This idea that any kind of attempt to counter that is actually oppressive to them, like taking yes. away their privileges oppression. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that study about how in groups of that are evenly split between men and women, that when women speak, some astonishingly small numbers, like 20 or 30% of the time, men think that it was 50-50. And when women speak 50% of the time, men think women dominate. Do you remember at the beginning of this podcast, we actually tried to like time to try and stop me doing too much ranting. Yes. And we aren't doing that anymore. <laughs> it's not because the problem was solved. I'm fairly confident in this podcast so far because I got really ranty about the boats. I've probably ranted much more than you had a chance to get a word in, um, <laughs> for which I apologise. And I will try to shut up a bit more. But yeah, no, that I, I hear you and I don't, without restating the point you just made, yes, agreed, conceded. Anyway, it's it's funny. I sometimes have to choose to be amused rather than angered because I'm just sick of walking around in rage all the time. Does mm, might deserve it. In fact, here's another person who agrees with you, Julia Banks, the Liberal men- member for Chisholm. In my political journey, a culture of appalling behaviour has been widespread, pervasive and undermining, like white ants. So how do we fix this? There's no panacea. But a good start is to increase the representation of women in our parliament. This creates a level playing field. Only gender quotas will work in politics, not targets, because you cannot tie political office to salary or incentives as you can in business. It seems that quotas are only resisted when they relate to gender. Quotas are not demeaning to women, and nor will women be regarded as the quota girl. The concept that this will begin that path to destruction of micro-quotas depending on people's sexuality or ethnicity is ludicrous. We're talking about quotas for women, who represent more than half our population. The meritocracy argument is completely and utterly flawed. There are an equal number of meritorious Liberal women out there in the real world, as there are men. But they won't come if the barriers to entry and mountains to climb are too high. It's really simple. If you only have a man running and you can't find a woman, find one. They're out there. They represent half the population, and so should a modern Liberal Party. This parliament must be represented by a 50-50 split of men and women in both major parties. A parliament which truly represents the principle that equality always wins. And it's not often that I agree with Julia Banks. No, and not often that anybody should. But it, it's kind of one of those things where occasionally the people from, from a, in, in an oppressed group 
who are oppressors in every other part of their life, rich, white, liberal women, on the subject of, of, of the form of oppression that they experience, can finally understand what needs to be done. A moment of insight. And it's amazing that they can't just then take that next step. But then there are so many women who fit into that category who come out against quotas and against that sort of thing. And the women who seem to think that their best way of surviving in the patriarchy is to embrace it are rather infuriating. It's not just women, like every group that is oppressed, there is a massive human tendency in the areas of life where you're not oppressed to be like, finally, I'm not in the oppressed class. I get to do some oppressing of my own. Not not over, not consciously, but subconsciously. Like, now I'm in the, the powerful group. And, which is why you see poor white people preferring to kick refugees than the rich white people who are oppressing them. Or black Christians preferring to kick black gay people. Yes. Or white women voting for Donald Trump. Yeah. Picking the area in their lives where they have privilege. And, and you know, doubling down on that, um, hence poor white racism or, you know, rich white women supporting Republicans or um, uh, religious black people in America yeah. supporting um, anti-gay people. Like, it's, yeah, it turns out that human beings aren't very good just because they've experienced depression at necessarily recognising their other privilege. In fact, it's often worse because they're like, how dare you say I'm, I'm privileged when I'm poor? Yeah, you're privileged in one sense and not yep. in the others. So you're better off than somebody who didn't have your privilege, but you're worse off than the people who have the privileges you lack. It's not actually that complicated, but people seem to be really shit at understanding it. Also, uh, politicians are really good at exploiting those grievances to distract from the fact that most of them are working against the economic interests of 95% of people. Oh, did you see, talking of Trump, that Morrison this week was quoted in the New York Times saying that he admires Donald Trump as a very practical leader who's not going to waste a day in office. He told, told them that he, uh, he and Trump share an instinct to help those forgotten by the forces of globalisation. He said, I think we both get it. Uh, he was talking about how many people in both the US and Australia feel left behind by the powerful economic forces of globalisation, which have brought massive wealth to some, but left others feeling poorer and disenfranchised. That's what we get. The president gets that. I get it, said Morrison. The, the president who passed a massive tax cut for the wealthiest Americans, mm. who exploded the American deficit in doing so, and is now looking to cut their taxes even further. And it's it come, it, it, there's a theme running through some of the things we've talked about today and I think some of the things we'll still talk about, uh, which is the way politicians use cultural issues to distract from economic issues. And I think the Australia Day thing is a really good example of that and the way they're positioning Scott Morrison. Let, let's do that. So we started talking about all the ways that notwithstanding how news is trying to make Scott seem great uh, and, and a normal bloke, he's done a bunch of things this week to show really who he is. And yes, the Australia Day thing, we'll talk about the giant gift to independent and Catholic schools at the expense of public schools and his massive dog whistling to the religious right that, don't worry, I'm coming to undo that thing that, that happened to for the gay people last year. I'm coming to help you kick them back. But shh, until after the Wentworth by-election. Shh, we'll wait until after that and then we'll... Yeah. <laughs> I, you can see me winking, but the podcast can't. Anyway. Should we make this a YouTube podcast? No, we shouldn't. 
I think all those things play into that broader strategy, which is to make distract people from the fact the Liberal Party is working against the economic interests of the vast majority of Australians. Inequality is increasing. Our wages aren't going up uh, relative to the cost of living. And those are the real issues for most people. But if we can talk about anything but that, uh, the Libs think they might have a chance. The school one is an actual policy one where he's specifically giving a whole lot of money to very rich schools at the expense of very poor schools. And um, that one really should come back to bite him. Uh, that that one is like in in amongst the religion thing and the school and the shade I thing. Well, no, I think one of the misconceptions about private schools is that they're all rich. A lot of them aren't rich. I still don't think we should be funding them. They're richer than the public schools. No, no. Some of the poorest schools in Australia are private schools. In fact, the poorest school in New South Wales, at least last time I checked, was a Christian school. Why do, why do we have religious schools? What is the defence for that? Well, and I think, I think that's the thing, that because everyone knows someone who goes to one of those really poor Christian schools or a poor sc- a private school, you know, uh, or a school that has some alternative philosophy... Uh, they get to use that story rather than the we're shoveling money toward Riverview. Which is what they're really doing. And they've created this giant, what was it, $1.4 billion fund for them to just dig into. Like, the fact that the independent schools, which is primarily the rich ones, the, the organisations and the Catholic diocese, like, they're very happy with this, indicates how much we've just given them. Oh, of course. And, like, I, I am so against public funding for private schools. I just think it's a more effective tactic at engaging not as wealthy group of voters than you might think. People who are spending a thousand dollars a year to send their kids to a private school, and there are private schools that cost a thousand dollars a year, not twenty or thirty thousand. I think they're far. They're all Catholic schools, aren't they? Or and independent Christian schools, and a whole bunch of other ones. The school I went to cost for year eleven and twelve cost about that much, and at that time there was a one to twelve scale. The richest schools were ones. And the poorest schools were 12, so we were a 10. So uh, it was not a wealthy school. And I wish I hadn't gone there and I wish... But that, but, that, but the point of this new thing is that they're throwing away Gonski. Gonski was needs-based funding and they're throwing that away. Yeah, this yeah. isn't about needs at all. And, and I love the disingenuous thing where he's trying to pretend that it's to do with the drought. Oh, no, it's to help you know people in drought areas. There are plenty of people in the rural areas affected by the drought who don't, can't afford bloody private schools at all and the public schools there are not getting anything out of this. So that, you know, since Snootington's can have a fucking third polo field and whatever, um, other ones, you know, in the middle of drought don't have any bloody air conditioning. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely with you. And I completely agree it's a terrible policy and it shouldn't happen. I just think it is more effective than you might be giving it credit for at motivating middle and even lower middle class Australians. But don't far more Australians send their kids to public schools than Catholic or independent schools. And those ones are being kicked in the face. So this is a thing where... It's about one third, two thirds. But again, the the third that sends their kids to private schools are probably going to be generally more engaged on this issue. Not that there aren't plenty of amazing, engaged public school parents. Of course there are. But I, I just think it could be a very effective tactic. Uh, twice as many parents. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, twice as many kids. But how engaged? Uh, whether or not it's an issue that they'll vote on is the thing. So, are you saying that you think that this is actually electorally beneficial to the coalition? 
Yes. Yes. I think because of the way our political system is set up, because of the small number of swinging voters in a small number of swinging seats, I think the voters that they need to motivate in those seats are probably going to respond to this policy well, for the most part. And you only need, you know, 60% of them. So uh, I, I think if we had proportional representation, maybe not. But I think the way our politics is set up, I do think it'll be effective, which I hate, but uh, I think it's true. I'm inclined to think that the fa- that a policy which seems unjust on its face and helps a third of parents at the expense of the other two-thirds, so twice as many parents or kids, I would have hoped that that would backfire and cost them far more votes that it would gain and and i would have thought that the the swing seats are just as likely to be ones filled with public schools i mean morrison's remark here i love this asked about the absence of it i couldn't find this actual quote unfortunately uh, the audio of this quote i could only find the audio of him making a bunch of obnoxious uh, statements about the schools but uh, not this direct quote but this is this is how fairfax reports it he was asked about the absence of any new money for public schools, and he said, public school funding is chiefly the responsibility of state governments. And then he said, I don't think parents will be cynical. They will note that we're funding public schools at record levels, and all parents want to have choices about how they educate their children. I hate the choices fucking line. Like, see, but parents should just have the choice of having $30,000 to send their kids to Melbourne Grammar. Why, why are you not choosing that for your kid? Oh, me too. I, I hate it as well. It's just moronic. But every time I get on my we need to defund private schools rant on Twitter, which I do not irregularly, someone comes back with that exact – well, lots of people come back with that exact thing. So I think it's a message that works. And, again, I know you're saying, you know, two-thirds, one-third, but you also have to think about what's the motivating issue when people vote because it's not just about what you care about. It's about – how you rank what you care about. Yeah, but the rich bastards who just care about that shit are probably already voting Liberal anyway. Well, again, I think characterising all private school parents as rich bastards is a really... The ones who are benefiting from this mainly are the wealthier ones. Like the poor private schools are not the ones who are hugely benefiting out of this. The poor private schools would have benefited out of Gonski. Yeah, yeah. If it was needs-based funding, they would do better. This policy is not helping them. It's helping the really rich ones. And those parents probably already voting libs. But again, you're talking policy, not messaging. And if they're hearing the message, lots more money for schools like the school my kid goes to from the Prime Minister on the six o'clock news because that's where they get their news, then I think that could be really effective. Well, I think they'll notice the school saying we're not getting as much out of this as we would have under Gonski. Uh, I mean, it, it really depends. So have you seen, and the idea of the new model is instead of doing it by census data, they're going to determine the money that they should get based on the income tax records of parents. This, this one is infuriating to me because... The reason why this benefits the rich schools is because of how broken the income tax system is, being that you and I will pay substantially more income tax yes. because we don't have expensive accountants that are using family trusts and negative gearing and God knows what else to reduce our taxable income to negligible amounts or even zero, like when the government comes up and is like, but negative gearing, like so many people who, who negatively gear are earning like 80000 a year or less, some of them are on zero. Yeah, 
How are they negative gearing when they've got no income? Because they don't have no income, they have a much bigger income, and negative gearing lets them reduce their taxable income down to zero. Which is why we need an alternative minimum tax. Have you heard about, in the US, they have this thing called an alternative minimum tax, which is that basically there's a proportion of your income, and if your tax drops below that, you have to pay that amount no matter what. That's a good idea. So it's basically you can't deduct past a certain point. I am so in favour of an alternative minimum tax. We should have one. I agree, but also get rid of a bunch of these rots. Like, we should be shutting down negative gearing, and we should be shutting down the massively abused family trusts, but of course, neither big party will do that because... Both of them are full of people using it themselves. In fact, it's a miracle that Labor's even willing to grandfather negative gearing and shut it down. But they're, they're doing that because they're grandfathering it, even though most of them are benefiting from it. But at least it won't affect them directly. It'll just affect the next generation of, of Labor politicians who probably don't own houses anyway. The grandfathering of negative gearing... As, see, this is another one of those things where we've got to cop a compromise to try and fix the problem, which just massively benefits the assholes who set this fucking thing up in the first place. Grandfathering it means that all of the rich old bastards who own everything get to keep doing that. It's just that there are no, it'll stop new rich bastards doing it. The old rich bastards can't add more to their portfolio either. That would be good. So there is some, there is some value there. I have to say, this is in the same way as whenever the liberals talk about their current system being a meritocracy, all you have to do is look at their front bench or their recent prime ministers and see, oh, there's a whole lot of counterexamples proving that it's not a meritocracy. This story proves how the rich people use the income tax system to benefit themselves and not pay any freaking tax because the point of this model is that it's benefiting the rich private schools. Like, the point, like they admit that it's going to cost a lot more money that's going to go to richer private schools. Like That's certainly something they concede. That's where the money's going. And the method by which they're doing that is doing it on income tax of those areas. Yeah. Now, if income tax system, the income tax system was equitable, then that wouldn't make them get more money. They would get less money because obviously the rich people in those areas are much richer. Obviously they are. Look how much they can spend. They can pay $30,000 a year to send their kids to fucking Melbourne Grammar. Clearly they are rich. You know what I think would be a better thing to base it on? Property prices. Mm. Base it on property values. And we should be taxing. They need land tax to fix the tax system as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. Massively. No, of course. Needs, because you can't, you can't dodge the land tax. You can't just, like, nick off overseas with it. Like, you own that property, you pay the land tax on it. Or you just have to sell it. Yep. It, it's hard to dodge that one, and it's pretty equitable. Yeah. Anyway. All right, so now let's talk about the, the Morrison's silly social stuff. So oh, oh, I suppose the religious one is not so much silly. There's been an essential poll that came out that had... More people, still a minority, but more people supporting the idea of protecting religious freedom than opposing it. Which makes sense, because religious freedom sounds like a good thing. It's just that they don't mean religious freedom. They mean, air quotes, religious freedom, meaning taking rights away from gay people, making it easy to sack them. Yes. That's entirely what they mean, which is why it's a response to marriage equality. Whenever Morrison's asked, so what are the examples of these things that need fixing? He can't list them, because he doesn't have any. Because what he means is, I want to undo... Gay people getting rights last year as much as we can. But I don't want to tell you about precisely what we're going to do until after the by-election. Can I ask you some questions about your position on this? Yep. Uh, do you think churches should be able to refuse to mer- to perform gay marriage ceremonies? While we're giving them uh, massive tax benefits, yes. If they are just a, an organisation that is... Well, I don't know. How much should... Hang on. At what, as in, what massive tax benefits? They don't have to pay tax. Religion is a ground on which you don't have to pay tax if you're a religious organisation. 
Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, you could argue they're just not-for-profits. No, if it was not, th- then they wouldn't have to pay tax. If they were a charity, charitable purposes are already covered. There are exemptions for charity, or what there is. No, no, not, there's a difference between a charity and a not-for-profit. I mean, not-for-profit. Mm. That's fine too. Like the Sydney Swans don't pay tax because they're a not-for-profit. Yeah. The, the point of religion getting its own special exemption separate to all the other things is obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But say they just got moved into the not-for-profit category. Well, it's a bit of a non-question. Like, do I think that a Christian church should be forced to marry Muslims or a Muslim church should be forced to marry Jews or whatever? Like, that's not a thing that anybody wants them to do. No, no. But, but do you think that someone should be able to sue them for refusing? Um, I think that's a more complex issue than what they're demanding, which is the power to sack people for being gay. No, no, but, but, but this is the thing. It's about, there's, the, there's that line, okay, so... But that's never come up. Like, there aren't any examples of it. It's not a thing that people are trying to do. There's a logic to what I'm asking here. Uh, just, just go with me for a second. So you're unsure about that line. I think I get what you're asking. What about a church... That do you think churches should be able to preach that homosexuality is wrong, or should that be classified as hate speech? Okay, should churches be able to preach that women working is wrong? Plenty do, and they're allowed to. Should churches be able to preach that black people voting is wrong? Ple- well, not plenty do anymore, but they used to. Because that is the same argument. No, no, no. Should there be any limit? That's yeah. That's not what I'm. What I'm asking is, should that be illegal? Because even now, it's not illegal to preach that black people voting is wrong. No. Well, I guess the question is, should should religion override anti discrimination laws? I'm not convinced that it should. If your if your religion requires you to be teaching preaching hate against people and preaching that they are lesser human beings, why should we protect that? Why why should we as a community give you a free pass for that? Like you can because religions. All religion is is somebody going, I believe X. Oh, good for you. So, but you could believe anything. Yep. Well, that doesn't mean that it's a. It should get to override the re- the law. And if the law's there for a good reason, we shouldn't. You shouldn't be allowed to go out there and and yeah, yeah. incite hatred and then just go. It's okay because it's religious. No, no. But there's no law against you know, Joe Bo Blob at the pub saying that gay marriage is is wrong. So. Why should religion be treated differently? I'm saying religion should not be treated differently. I'm saying that that religion should not have exemptions from anti-discrimination laws. So whatever the anti-discrimination laws that apply to the rest of us, they should also apply to religion. They should apply to everyone. There shouldn't be an exemption just because you go, my imaginary sky friend told me it. Like, that's no better an argument than... Well, I I actually find that quite disrespectful because I, I I respect that you might not believe, but I do... I am a theist. I do believe in God, and I think... Using imaginary sky friend is really quite disrespectful. Well, you believe that God is real. Yep. I find it... Okay, this is not a theology podcast. I, I do find it difficult to accept that there... No, no, no. I just I just think that being dismissive of having faith is not particularly useful. And don't get me wrong, plenty and plenty horrible things have happened in the name of, of Christianity and... There are plenty of people who profess to be Christians who do awful, awful, awful things. And that's not to defend that. But I think that to conflate every person who believes in God with that is deeply problematic. All right. I was specifically referring to those who are like, I'm sorry, but I need to be able to discriminate because of what I think some some unprovable entity has told me. My point is that the people who are using that, because... 
no matter how religious you are, you have to concede that your religion is not provable. It requires faith. There's nothing that we can look at and go, oh, I see. I can see God right there laying down this and threatening to kill us all if we don't obey it. Okay, fine. Well, I guess in that case, maybe we need to amend our laws to take into account this factor of that thing that is clearly we have to adapt to that thing. But in this case, in this case, my point, my point about the imaginary sky friend was more that if you make religion an exemption to anti-discrimination law, basically anyone can say anything because there's no, there's nothing that defines what you can believe. There's no limit to what a what you can yes, say of course. is my religious belief. Anything can be a religious belief. But I guess that's probably where we disagree because I do think anyone can say anything. I'm a, I, I do think that sp- particularly speech. But, but what I'm saying is why should that override the law for the rest of it? Like, why should you not still have to abide? Yeah, yeah, no. Because you might, you might be like, well, my God says that I can speed and that it's, it's a sacrilege to go at only 40. <laughs> I get that. But I, where I'm going to with this and, and where I was trying to, to get to is it, it's where that line is drawn. And I, I do think it's complicated because I don't think we can go. Why does religion need exemptions? Why do you need to be more? I, I don't think it does. Cool. Well, then we're in the same page. And I'm very, very, very firmly in favour of a secular state. And I, I think we need to be more secular than we are. But I also think we need to be more protective of speech than we are. I, I am a free speecher. Not in a libertarian way, but because I, I do think that our speech is, is too curtailed in Australia. In what, in what way? What, what speech? Oh, the thing that gets me is our defamation law is terrible. And it, it prevents really good and important reporting. Like what? Oh, I think we need... Uh, so the US has a system where public figures, you have to prove actual malice. And I think that would be a much, much better standard. Than it being accurate. Well, I mean, look at the Joe Hockey thing. I, look, I, I agree that defamation is broken, but it's more broken because of the massive cost of it and the mismatch between the people who can use it and the people who can't. I, I think it's a combination of that and the standard. But we don't have very good media um, watch standards that like to over to, in terms of accuracy and things either. So we don't like it's kind of one of the hacks to try and balance the fact that you can pretty much get away with pretty whatever you bloody like. Yeah, I the I think the level and the burden that we require people before they can publish things is is too high and i think that it has a a real silencing effect that works to protect the powerful okay well in terms of the what he's talking about in terms of the religious freedom stuff are are we on the same page yep that the current rights that religions have to discriminate against people in, in terms of employment for example it's not even like they have to demonstrate that the person has any particular connection, like that the, the role that they're engaged in has anything to do with the private life. So they can sack the registrar at St. Vincent's Hospital for being yep. a lesbian. They can sack the gardener at a Anglican school for being gay. And they don't even have to just do that. The fact that they have that power, and there's nothing you can do about it if they do, means that they have this giant stick to wield over the lives of LGBTI people. Whether or not they exercise it, they still have it sitting there. And they are demanding the right to have that and not only just have it now, but they want to be able to extend it further so that even organisations that aren't actually religious, that if you're just a religious managing director and you just feel like, you're just like, I don't like the gay person working for me, I'd like to have the power to sack them for being gay. They want to extend those powers. And we saw it, like a a gay teacher was sacked in um, Western Australia for being gay when they found out that he was gay. Like Like last year, around the time of the marriage equality. They can do it. And they shouldn't be able to do it. Another question for you. Um, would you be okay with those 
protections being removed for everything except churches themselves. And that would be a better compromise, but I don't, I don't, I don't think employers, like if the church is employing people, you shouldn't have the power to sack someone or harm them to punish them for their private life. We should all have a right to a, a private life and, and that, has, that, that employers can't dig into. It should never be valid for an employer. It's bad enough that Centrelink can dig into your, your private life. Do you think that your faith is a part of your private life? Your private faith, no. Your public faith. Because uh, I certainly would. In terms of your job, it's your what you're doing in your job that's relevant. What you do outside of your job isn't. For example, do you think churches should be barred from not hiring people who don't believe? Should Christian churches have to have ministers who aren't Christians? Who don't identify as Christians. If they can do the job, but I would have to say that would be a pretty staggering interview if you can convince the church that you are definitely the person who can do this, even though you abject, you do not believe in it. You'd like to take a probably not very well-paid job promoting a faith you don't believe in. But hang on, there are lots of people who have, have built a career in the church who then lose their faith. Oh, yeah, yeah. Should the church just be able to sack them? Sorry, you don't, you don't, you don't believe it privately enough. Well... I think that's a very interesting question. And, and then that gets back to my original question of you, for you, which was, do you think we should have laws protecting what people can say about homosexuality and about a whole bunch of other issues? And if a church has a doctrine that says, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman, should they be able to not hire people for not agreeing with that doctrine? which is different. If a church felt that black people were lesser human beings and didn't want to hire black people, should they be allowed to do that? Well, I mean... All the other categories of discrimination... The reason I'm saying that, not because I'm not making light of racism, my point is that, that one of them, that, that seems a lot harsher, whereas... I grew up in the Sydney Anglican Diocese where women can't lead churches, and that's still the case. So they have that kind of discrimination because of their theology. Why should that be protected, though? Why, why should if you, if you had a racist church that hated black people, why should that be protected? Why is it that simply because somebody goes, it's my religious belief, does any kind of... Like, where do you draw the line? If, if you're going, well, if it's somebody's honest religious belief, they should be able to do what they like? Like, to what extent? Like, to what extent do you think religion should override everybody else around you? Should it ever, and why? And that's where that whole idea of the secular state is really important, which is that places of business schools, those sorts of things, anything that receives any government money in any form uh, shouldn't be able to discriminate in any way. But I just think it's, I think it's really complicated and I just don't think it's so straightforward. I think it's, well, I think it has to be straightforward because you have to draw the line. And I think the line, the sensible place to draw the line is that you don't get exemptions from the law. And so what we think is necessary to protect oppressed groups generally, everybody has to abide by that. And look, if you don't like that as a religion, then, you know, you can, nobody's getting into your head, but you don't get to sack people for it. But, but that's the thing, that, that idea of getting into your head. Well, nobody's, but no, no law's getting into your head. And nobody's really suggesting that hate speech, the threshold should be a ludicrously low one where everybody's hauled before a tribunal. But it should certainly, when it gets to a certain level of, of seriousness that the courts and the tribunals can deal with, like that the volume is, is manageable, I suppose... Yes, of course that should be a thing. But the issue before us now is to what extent should religious organisations be able to turn around and say, no, nah, it's fine for me to do that because I'm a religion. 
but I don't think they should ever be able to do that. That, that should never be an excuse. Why should that be an excuse? If, if I held a moral belief, but it's just I don't call it a religion, like I don't believe in God, my moral belief is, is less worthy because I don't think there's a God involved? Uh, no, no, okay. So here's, here's a cr- uh, opposite. If a member of the Greens uh-huh. who was elected as a Greens member uh-huh. decided that their moral, strong moral belief was in favour of mandatory detention, should the party be able to kick them out? Are they going to consistently vote for it? Keep in mind that political parties, their job is to advocate. Yes. So I imagine that their sudden belief in mandatory detention would make their ability to do their job, which is advocating for the party's policies, I imagine that they would become shit at their job and they should probably lose their job as a result of their inability to actually do it. Political parties are a slight different thing because they're purely about advocacy and the only way, like, there's a reason why they have exemptions from things like defamation law and so forth in Parliament, because otherwise you can't actually have a debate just in that specific area. But I I don't think you need a specific exemption for political parties that they can sack people that they find out privately don't agree with them. I just think that you would find out pretty quickly that they're pretty shit at their job. And it's not a matter of sacking them. It's a matter of when it comes up to pre-select people, you'd be looking at who can advocate the case best. And I imagine that, look, if the person who believes in mandatory detention is still better at advocating against it than the people who are opposed to it, then good for them. They can do it. I don't really care what they believe in their own head as long as they're good at arguing the party policy. So should a church be able to not hire someone who doesn't advocate for, say, if they believe in marriages between a man and a woman, if the church's theology is has that, should they be able to not hire someone who doesn't agree with that as a minister? Right, let me flag something too with the Greens. Back to the political analogy, the, the issue with the person who believes in mandatory detention being in the Greens would be that, obviously, a political party, what its policies can change, and the people who get to decide that may be the members, they may be the representatives and so having that person in there but then people would realize who that was and then they can make a decision as to whether they want to be in a party with that person and same with the religion you had was it the catholic archdiocese of in tasmania you had one, you've had religion religious organizations refusing to let their priests who don't agree with the position that the organization is currently taking speak so you had i think it was the catholic archdiocese in tasmania refusing to let people who catholic priests who were in favor of marriage equality speak there they're saying you're not you're not you're this is sacrilege you don't agree with our religion but religions also change so if if they're able to just kick out people who don't agree with them then is that really in keeping with those organizations anyway like it's not like the catholic church is currently saying that the earth is flat and 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 the sun goes around the earth like they eventually had to go oh yeah we were wrong on that but they needed people who didn't believe in that who were in the organisation who were then able to shift it. Yeah, but there's the thing about are they in the organisation or are they in the position of leadership? And um, remember, not all churches are as top-down as the Catholic Church. Is it an important part of Catholicism to teach kids that that gay people shouldn't marry? I wouldn't know. I'm not a Catholic. I've only ever attended Catholic churches for weddings and funerals. My point is, if it's a category of people that... if, if we're talking about the specific categories where we've gone, these are grounds on which people discriminated against and harmed, and therefore they need protection. I would suggest that those groups, that the protections for them should carry over to, should not, there shouldn't be exemptions just because somebody's an organisation is religious. They should carry over, they should be universal protections. And therefore, if somebody's insisting on... I think within churches themselves, not in peripheral 
not in hospitals or schools or anything like that. But I think within churches themselves, I think it's okay for churches to only hire people whose theology is consistent with theirs. But that's really arguable. That's really arguable. What's their th- who who determines their theology? Because it changes. Even the theology, the religions also change over time. But most churches have before you go searching for a minister, as a church, you sit like as a, the individual branch or whatever you want to call it, sit down and determine what they're looking for in that minister as a group of people. Like they have selection committees. It makes it a bit hard for them to ever have a bloody reformation. You know how they keep on shouting, "Oh, well, Islam never had a reformation." And therefore, it's more conservative, and it's arguable whether it is in fact. But so in in the places where it is, like if if you give them the power to sack people who are pushing for change in the organisation, then aren't you st- aren't you stopping these organisations developing? Aren't you helping the old guard at the expense of perhaps the congregation, perhaps people who have who do want change? Not really, no, because it's it's a marketplace of ideas but not if you get to, if they get to sack people first and churches are changing and 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 have changed within the current structure that we have but you're saying that they should have the as they do now that they should retain the power to kick out people who don't agree with them no no i'm saying they should have vastly less power than they have now and i think that they should be able to make hiring decisions based on their values and theology, even if that is something that I consider discriminatory. So you think that if a, a priest loses their faith in their sixties and they've lived in the, you know, they've worked for the church all their life, and that's their entire life, they haven't earned much, they haven't been able to put much away. They've been living, you know, in poverty, helping the poor and so forth. But they've lost their faith now. They don't agree with you religiously. They do all the work. They do all the stuff that they're supposed to do. Should the church be able to sack them because they've lost their faith? I think you'll hear that I said hiring decisions, not firing decisions. I think that that's different. And I think that the standard for firing should be different for the standard for hiring. All right. Coming to where we agree. We agree that they shouldn't have the rights to sack people for being gay. Yes. Good. All right. Uh, Morrison doesn't, and of course, large part of what they're trying... There is only one reason that they are refusing to release the result, the Ruddock review until after the Wentworth by-election, and that is because they know that when they when that review comes out, the massively slanted thing that it's going to be, because the, the person holding it is the person who gave us the marriage equality ban in 2004 in the first place, and they've had all of these secret submissions. Like, it is the dodgiest review you can imagine. Like, it's so shonky. So it'll come out and it'll say, you know, religions need more power to undo everything that gay, all the, the rights that gay people just got. Maybe we should give religions a new power. Maybe maybe we should have like a bill of rights, but only one for religious people. Because we, we don't want to give a bill of rights to ordinary people, but we'll do one for religious people. Like it'll come out with some bullshit that is demanding a great expansion of religious rights at the expense of everyone else. But they don't want to do that before the Wentworth by-election. So for the moment. Yeah, but we've got a federal election not that far away and the country overwhelmingly voted in support of gay marriage. I think it'll be a, an own goal. I hope so. I think it'll be a dog whistle to Castle Hill, but I I think it's throwing a bone to the base because you want to keep the base on side and not lose them to Bernardi and Co. But I don't think it will actually be a particularly uh, a winning issue. I hope not. And that leads us to Morrison's last thing this week, which is his Australia Day thing. So you can tell how desperate somebody is and how bereft of ideas they are when they're throwing this, throwing up 
the Australia Day War in September. Good old history wars. Look, I mean, it worked for Howard. Going back to a classic, when in doubt, go for it. You know, a, a, a solid achiever. No, it's it's pathetic. So what he proposed was uh, leave Australia Day on January 26th, uh, but maybe we should think about a day to celebrate Indigenous people on another day. When? I haven't actually thought about it. I haven't got any particular ideas. It's just a way to sound like less of a bastard when I say that indulgent self-loathing doesn't make Australia stronger. Being honest about the past does. This is his tweet. Our modern Australian nation began on January 26, 1788. That's the day to reflect on what we've accomplished, become, still to achieve. We can do this sensitively, respectfully, proudly together. And I'm going to drop in some audio here of Scott uh, trying to defend this idiotic brain fart. You also want to create a new national day for Indigenous Australians. Do you have a preferred date for that? I've said just today, it'd be good to have a chat about it. Uh, we should think about it. I mean, we don't have to pull Australia Day down to actually recognise the achievements of Indigenous Australians, uh, the, the oldest living uh, culture in the world. And uh, so, I, you know, the, the two can coexist. And so Australia Day was that fulcrum point. The 26th of January 1788, that was the day that Australia changed forever. And we can't just pretend like it wasn't that day, something else happened. Uh, but we should be acknowledging, I think, the, the great work of, of Indigenous Australians and their contribution to our nation. And I think there's opportunities about that. And I'm happy to have a consultation about that, talk to the states and territories, Indigenous communities, hear back from Australians. But you don't have to tear down one group to raise up another. And that's something I feel very strongly about. We can, we can recognise the contributions of all Australians from our first to our most recent. But I guess, Mr Morrison, uh, we've been talking and, and maybe arguing about an, another Indigenous Day for several years now. So to put this out in the public arena, uh, haven't you got an idea for another date? Well, I've got some private thoughts, but I'm more interested to know what other Australians think. And do you see this, Prime Minister, as being like Australia Day, as, as being a public holiday and a huge national celebration? Well, I'm not getting too far ahead of myself on this or, or the country. I think it's important, you know, states and territories, they decide ultimately what are, what are public holidays and they gazette those and, you know, um, there are implications for businesses and so on and I'm sure they'd have views. So, look, I'm happy to have a chat about it. So Morrison seems to think that the problem with January 26 is that there's not enough commemorative Indigenous people going on and that if we just commemorate them on a different day, it'll be fine. He also seems to think that people asking to change the date are saying we want to get rid of Australia Day rather than just have it on a different date. They didn't say abolish it. It says change the date to, I don't know, one of the many other dates that it's been celebrated on throughout our history because it wasn't always January 26th. You've got a whole bunch of people who are trying to tear down Australia Day. Now, and, and I know some people are motivated by the fact that they want to recognise Indigenous people more, and I get that. There are others who are just being goons about this, and, you know, we're not going to cop that, and that's why we'll take citizenship ceremonies away in those circumstances. He's fundamentally missed, A, that they're not asking to abolish it, they're asking to move it, and B, that it's the problem with January 26 isn't whether or not he commemorates Indigenous people, it's that it's commemorating the day that they started being murdered that we started the dispossession, genocide, the frontier wars. Like he even says it in that in that clip that I just played, that it's about the day that, you know, that's the fulcrum. 
That's the fulcrum where we... Be- yeah, the bit where we stopped being their country and became the country that was brutally built over the top of them and in which they were persecuted. Yeah, it's a dick of a day to pick. We need to pick a different day. It's not about whether they're commemorated. It's about that you're commemorating like how tone deaf it is. It's like the French celebrating the day the Germans invaded. It's not the day to celebrate. And to think that it is, is utterly tone deaf. And the fact that he's like, we need to be honest about the past, when his entire government, the Liberal Party's entire policy on this has been, shut up about the frontier wars. We don't want to know about your black armband view of history, by which we mean learning what we fucking did to the Aboriginal people. Like, they don't want the real past. They want their bullshit past. Yeah, have you ever heard of a... uh, uh 19th century historian named Leopold von Ranke. No. He's one of those really key figures in the development of, of history as a discipline. And his famous say, uh, phrase is, Vies angelic gewesen, which means how it really was. And that school of historical thought, this, we can know the truth, it is a single narrative and it is a positive, Eurocentric, white-centric narrative, really... It's the dominant one among conservatives. It's also dishonest. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But it's utterly consistent with the way they understand history, which, you know, is that really old-fashioned history from above and and Eurocentric, the the myth of the civiliser, that whole thing. Um, you know, it, it's echoing back to the school of Western civilization that they were going to put at ANU. It, it's that whole idea. It's so not surprising that he thinks about historical commemoration within that tradition of celebration rather than even acknowledging that it's complex, much less the, you know, obvious thing that it's really hurtful. Well, and it's clearly wrong and myopic, and not just in the the Bridget McKenzie way. Okay, so this is Senator McKenzie uh, from the Nationals who apparently, well, let me play you the clip. Yes, that needs to be recognised that that's how they feel on that day. But the reality is uh, that is when the course of our nation changed forever. Uh, When, uh, you know, Captain Cook uh, stepped ashore. And from then on, we've built an incredibly successful society, a best multicultural society in the world. Uh, Yes, he was a zombie, having been dead for eight years. And he came ashore on January 26, 1788, and started eating the brains of the Indigenous people. And that is when <laughs> Indigenous Australia started suffering the zombie wars. A terrible day, but <laughs> we haven't commemorated anywhere near enough. It, it's, it's deeply embarrassing that she got that wrong. Like, it's just... There, there's a few things you should get right as an Australian politician. and Well, as a conservative trying to push this bullshit, the colonial bullshit, like, you should at least know. But... Even when they get, you know, the basic dates and names right, they're still ignoring the frontier wars. They're still ignoring what happened, why we suddenly went from lots and lots of Aboriginal people to hardly any. Where did they go? It's a mystery. Better not do any historical research to find out. Like, we've never done what South Africa did and have an actual Truth and Reconciliation Commission, some kind of actual... When they tell us, shut up, move on. It's in the past, but they're the same people who are like, but we must always respect Anzac Day and celebrate Anzac Day and you know commemorate every fucking detail of Anzac Day and take pride in Anzac Day, even though none of us were there. But on the other hand, when none of us were there for the murder of, of Indigenous people, but we are still massively benefiting from it uh, as people living on the bloody land that we stole, 
that bit, we weren't there for it, so shut up and move on. Like, they're completely inconsistent with it. They're inconsistent. Their whole thing about January 26th is based on the lie that that's always been Australia Day, which it hasn't. You can see plenty of historical artifacts that that wasn't the bloody day that we celebrated. It's the Sydney Day. All of their crap about the flag. Like, that wasn't even the flag for most of the time, I think. Like, conservatives who want us to celebrate these national symbols, their white national symbols, can't even get them right. They don't even know. Like, they're still... It's like they believe in Father Christmas. It's this bullshit fantasy version that must, did they pull it out of a picture book that they that they picked up in the school library at some point? No, most picture books are more accurate than that. You would hope so. I would like us to address this and move on. I don't think that it's good for Australia to be... Like, the... Scott Morrison, it's not self-loathing that we want this dealt with. It's loathing for dickheads like you, nationalist assholes who want to pretend that it didn't happen and never deal with it. We do loathe you. I prefer to think it's it's not loathing, it's empathy. And it's trying to put yourself in the shoes of someone else. And if it was your land... It's mainly empathy, but, but if there is loathing, it's directed towards the dickheads who don't have any empathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I may have pulled out from the board game cupboard the other day uh, a copy of Squatter, which I've never actually played. But anyway, there's these six giant stations, sheep stations. And the the book and the website for the game proudly... They're talking about how, you know, it's, it's endorsed by the, the... It's got wool mark on it. It's, it's endorsed by the wool industry because it's very educational. <laughs> and it talks about this sort of... The great Australian wool industry and these great stations that, that pulled, pulled this industry out of, out of, the, out of the, the soil. Yeah. Um, and it completely ignores... I mean, it's called squatter. Who were the squatters? They were the white people who just came in and went, Mine. I'll just take that. Fuck off, Aboriginal people. Mine. It's a game that is celebrating the people who just who were who did the most active stealing and also a lot of you know the frontier wars in particular, and there is no acknowledgement of that in there at all. Like it, it is completely tone deaf about it. Okay, I may have gone onto the. Well, it's. I think it's probably a product of its time. They've reprinted it recently. It's current. Oh yeah, yeah. They've done, they did a not a Kickstarter, but they. I used to play with my grandfather's copy from probably the nineteen sixties or so. Yeah, that's that's when it came out. And it's it's not surprising that back then. They are, were very much taking a, a history from above. But it's just that classic Western idea of, you know, winners write the history. But, I mean, their, their website probably wasn't written in the 1960s and their website still is boasting about Like, it's complete. And I'm, I'm like, I did message them. And I'm like, look, you guys might want to consider now in 2018 that this is really tone deaf. Yeah. And the idea that in the 1960s people were completely oblivious to what the squatters were and what they actually did is also pretty problematic. Like... Did you think that they just sort of like the the land was completely empty and they just God gave it to them and and everybody was happy and the people who were there first were just like oh it's fine we weren't using it that's all right like like in the nineteen sixties it's presumably you had some kind of a well, a lot of people did think that that's the whole thing that even you know there, there are people even now who think of invasion as civilizing, which mm. is so wrong. But that was the dominant narrative until very, very recently. We civilized them to death. A lot of death. Yeah, basically. In a civilizing we sim- way. You know, we killed we killed most and then we assimilated the others. You know, that was the the actual policy, but that was taught as a good thing. And of course it's messed up. Of course it's awful. And so when they re-released Squatter recently and they didn't update any of this shit, I think they should, I think the website should be updated and in any future printings of it, they should have a thing in there saying what the Squatters did, what the consequences were, and like some actual history. 
But apparently in Australia, we can only have history if it's hagiography. We can only have history that's like rah-rah yep. nationalism yep. and any kind of genuine understanding. So, which makes all of our history bullshit, weak, nothing. Yes. And it also means that w- myths get perpetuated that help us form part of our identity and they're not even true. It's like that whole thing about, oh, Australians are lovable larrikins who, you know, love a rule breaker. When we're one of the most rule-obsessed countries I've ever been to. Yeah, well, hence the, cl- the classic thing of um, being able to go, look, yes, sure, we're brutally persecuting those children on remote gulags. Um, that that um, stateless man who we've held for nine years, who we're apparently just going to imprison forever. But, you know... He broke a rule by coming here, so frankly, it doesn't matter what happens. Like, you know how our standard summary of the World War II Germans was they were very rule-obsessed, you know, and it led them to do horrible things because they, 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 they could justify anything if there's some kind of arbitrary rule for it. But we're just like that. Like, oh, yeah. it is such a thing of the privileged, powerful people are like, uh, that, that oppressed group didn't follow an arbitrary rule that we made, therefore they deserve whatever the fuck we do to them. Yep, that's uh, sadly true. I actually had put a whole lot of stuff aside about about, um, Morrison's ridiculous Muppets stuff. The events of the last more than two weeks ago um, resembled a Muppet show. The the curtains come down on that Muppet show and an absolute new curtain has lifted up. How can you be sure the curtain has come down on that Muppet show, Prime Minister? You say Muppets. How do you unite a bunch of Muppets now? Well, I'm, I'm doing exactly that in terms of my colleague. I was going to put underneath it me playing the Muppets on the piano, uh, like I'm playing right underneath me speaking right this moment, and then and stopping. But I'm not <laughs> going to do that because we're, this has gone way longer than I, than, than I was expecting, except we had an interesting, interesting debates about various things. Uh, I am going to play you, though, what Morrison put over the top of some footage from Parliament in a tweet, which he then had to delete. Because there was so much wrong with this. First of all, like it was, it was the original is dickish because he's he's got the members of his backbench like putting up their arms, almost zigheiling. It's really a weird optic. I don't know why that thought that was a good idea, but there you go. He's basically doing it to um, Labor's full of union people, and you know who, who here in the coalition uh, was was in the was a police officer, Ray was a farmer, Ray, you know that kind of thing. But then for some reason he's because police officers don't have unions. <laughs> oh, there is an. Excellent uh, link explaining the bullshit war on the Faris Union in Victoria. And actually, if you're interested in understanding that whole thing, uh, if you Google hashtag VicVotes Fire Services Primer, uh, the link should take you to um, medium.com forward slash at EBA Truth. And then there's a, a very good explanation of what that whole thing was about. Definitely worth reading. Oh, I'm so glad someone's finally written one because it's Australia's most confusing political scandal. Yeah, I'll try and pop a link in the show notes as well. But anyway, back to the Scott Morrison. So he was doing that and he had, and then his social media team took that footage and they played it like in at high speed with this music. Member for Greenway. Business here. Here we go. Who's ever worked in the private sector here? Here we go. Who's ever been a police officer here? Here we go. We've got a police officer up the back here. Who's a, who's a farmer on this side of the house? Members on my left. Farmers over here. We've got medical practitioners. Who's ever served in the Australian Defence Force? 
Now, Morrison ultimately took that down because it turns out that that, that rap song also starts talking about who's going to have uh, anal sex tonight and various things. And it's, it's, it had a whole lot of messaging that the liberals didn't really like when they heard the rest of that song. But, like, it's also a weird thing to be like, they're, it, were they boasting about having money or something? Like, who here's got ca- lots of cash? Me! Who's got a whole lot of investment properties? Me! Who thinks that they're an ordinary, relatable politician? Me! Have you ever uh, come across one of those people who claims they're a social media expert and then you look them up and they've got, like, 12 Twitter followers and, like, eight people following them on Instagram? I've never met somebody who declared that that's who they were. Oh, I've I've met more than a few. Uh, I've worked in companies where people have come in as the social media expert who are not so much, and I expect it's someone pretty much exactly like that who's behind this video. Well, to be fair, based on how much time is wasted on Twitter, maybe having no tweets and no social media followers is actually a plus. Maybe it indicates that you're a sensible person. I think as a person, it's probably a useful thing. I think as a social media expert, maybe not so much. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm clearly, uh, I have far more followers than that, and I'm not much of a social media expert. I spend a whole lot of time arguing with some dickhead about, oh, probably the really vicious one this week was, was anti-trans people, before realising the person had like three followers and had only just started their account and had no tweets. And I'm like, why? What am I doing? Arguing? What am I achieving? Like, you probably had an account that you had to then delete. Like, why am I? Anyway. And he's like, oh, you won't debate with somebody who's only got three followers. You snob. And I'm like... I understand. Yeah, it's not like that's your identity. It just means that you are just trolling me. Piss off. I, uh, these days I mostly use Twitter to search for people who are just discovering that Ronan Farrow and John Lovett are a couple and getting really excited about that. And every time, like pretty much every day, there are like 10 new people who discover this fact and uh, are, are genuinely delighted. Erin, thank you for joining me for this very long episode that was going to be a, a short, punchy half hour, but then we had genuine philosophical debates. And, that, and that's what podcasts need. Exactly. It's no fun just talking to someone who agrees with you all the time. By the way, if anybody does have somebody there who is prepared to try and defend offshore detention and have the actual argument with me, I'm more than happy to have that argument on the podcast. If, maybe if they do want to do a whole episode, I'm happy to just do it as a recording just on that and we can drop it in. Because I don't see how somebody in good faith can really defend it. I... I... Might have someone for you, but stay tuned. Have to talk offline. (laughs) All right, we'll say we'll stay tuned for that one. All right, there are a bunch of other things I do want to talk about next week's episode, uh, which I was going to talk about in this one, but I'm not going to because we've run out of time. But including the uh, aged care thing, particularly where um, Morrison threw Kim White under the bus. So the the ministers in the the ABC uh, four corners saying, no, no, we don't need a royal commission; just be a basic waste of money. After two years and maybe two hundred. Uh, million being spent on it will come back with the same set or a very similar set of recommendations that governments will respond and put into place uh, similar bodies. Followed by the next day having to eat crow and have the Prime Minister say, no, we're going to have a uh, a Royal Commission and uh, you better say some things in support of the thing that you are on record on the ABC saying you don't need, such as here... Thank you, Deputy Speaker. A minister who's rejected Labor's assertion of a sector in crisis as... ...now saying a Royal Commission will... ...enhance and complement the ongoing work that we will continue to do. 
How humiliating for Ken. And we didn't get into ABC. Oh, my God, no. And we yeah. didn't get into the schmozzle that happened in New South Wales Parliament this week. Like, it's been a big week. Yeah, there are, there are other things that, that may have to run over. Yeah, the, to be fair, we're recording this on Wednesday night. So the Guthrie sacking hasn't finished yet because now there are the massive calls for Milne to be sacked because of that email he uh, sent to Guthrie demanding that uh, Emma Alberici be sacked to keep the coalition happy. So, yeah, watch this space. I think there'll be more. Yeah, it's interesting, interesting story. And uh, there was this whole thing in New South Wales politics this week about the deputy leader of the Libs wanting to change seats so he didn't have to travel as far. <laughs> anyway, it was a whole, a whole deal. And uh, out of it, I... Uh, was given the opportunity to once again reflect on the fact that the Liberal Party candidate running in my seat for the state election lives 80 kilometres away. Hmm, local representation. That's why we don't. That's why we can't have multi-member electorates because we need that local representation. Yep. Pre-selected ahead of two locals, but you know the son of a former treasurer, I think. Anyway, so there's much much to discuss. You, I might get you to maybe maybe you'll stuck in my core next week. You might want to want to um, discuss some of the, that that issue as the developments happen in New South Wales Parliament. That seems fairly likely. All right, thank you for joining me. Thank you, listeners, for coming back. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers who keep the podcast running. Thank you to everybody who's left us a positive review on iTunes. I admire your stamina that at the end of an episode, as long as this one, you're still like, I can potter over to iTunes and I can go and rate and I can put like five stars there because I am dedicated. That's why I listen to this long episode on Australian politics, which is otherwise fairly depressing. But I'm committed and that's why I rated, well, may we say, five stars. I I just made up that person. I don't think that person exists. (laughs) Or maybe they just rate after very short episodes. I may have to put up a very short episode. For, for the people who hate the long episodes, here's a short one purely just so that you can enjoy it. Thank you for everybody for coming back. Thank you, Alex Lund, for the artwork. Thank you, Erin, for coming back. And, Erin, uh, where can people find you if they are, would like to see your current output? Uh, these days, I'm mostly just on Twitter, at Erin Riley AU. Well, thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Erin, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. See you next week. Bye. Some do-gooders tried to make a point and, and they've ended up, you know, damaging the whole, the whole show. So, look, I, I, they get the Muppet of the Year award from me for that. Mm.